Welcome to episode 156 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Friday, April the 14th, 2017. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at thefredcast.com. I'm the host and producer of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and other information, simply go to our website at the hyphen spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi, I'm Carlton Reed of bikebiz.com, and this will be a spokesman special in that it won't star the usual motley crew. At the top of the show, I said this show was recorded on 14th of April, which it was, but my guests were, in fact, recorded separately and over the space of a week or so. First off, we've got The Guardian newspaper's Peter Walker. He's a hard-headed news hack. And he's got a book out. One with a bold strapline. How cycling can save the world. In Bike Nation, Peter writes about his own personal transformation from a weedy child to somebody with muscular legs and life-extending lung capacity. But cycling isn't something for wannabe athletes, he writes. It's something, as we all know, for everybody. Peter's book makes a compelling case for bike infrastructure. And I know my next guest would agree with that. Martha Roskowski is Vice President for Local Innovation at the part industry-funded People for Bikes Advocacy Organization of America. We talk about a new digital tool People for Bikes will be using to plot existing bike infrastructure and where it would be most useful to place new stuff. My final guest has nothing whatsoever to do with bike infrastructure. He's Greg Bedanti of TV Motors International, and we chat about his career as a motorbike rider piloting camera crews in major bike races such as the Tour of California and the Tour de Yorkshire, which is coming up at the end of this month. Before I get the show on the road, I'd better explain that the audio with Peter Walker is a little bit odd. We were recording in a hotel corridor, and I didn't realise it would sound quite so muffled, so sorry about that. Peter, we've got some pressing problems in the world. We've got Trump, we've got chemical weapons being dropped by Assad, we've got Brexit, we've got all these very, very awkward things happening right now. But your book says cycling is going to save the world. So which part of the world can we save it? I don't think even bikes are going to take care of chemical weapons or the looming World War III. It's more that you couldn't really put on a book cover. Cycling will make the world a much more healthy, happy, prosperous and human-friendly place. I don't think the publishers would have uh, gone for a title like that. But you could argue it'll save the world in you know, several small, but you know, very well, not even small, but you know, in several kind of disparate ways. And the cover, because the cover you're holding there, so we're, we're, we're here talking about your book, basically. So it's called yes. Bike Nation, uh, and the, the, the subheading is How Cycling Can Save the World. Now, that cover, it's very different to the American cover. So why is the difference between the two different covers? Because the, if I describe the American cover, 
it's got a bicycle on it with the two worlds on, on as the wheel. So what was the thinking behind the two different covers? The only thinking is they're published by two entirely different companies. Well, they're both arms of the genuine, of the kind of giant penguin company. But the US one is uh, Tarcher, who are one of the big the penguin empire. And it's the Yellow Journey Press, who are the third part of the penguin landing uh, house. But the contracts are entirely different. The US one, for some mysterious reason, was the first one that was done. And they came up with the cover concept first. And uh, then, about a few months later, when the UK deal was done, the British publishers had a look at the US cover and decided to both of you know, both do a different cover and all this also like this white nation out in Britain. Everything is actually has to have something something cold, have something something longer time. So and to be honest, I really like both of them and you know the book is the same, more or less. So inside the contents aren't they different? The spellings are different. I rewrote maybe kind of twenty paragraphs in all to take out some of the US examples and put British examples in. But 99% is the same, yes, it's, it's basically the same book. You're a hard-headed hack. Indeed. Writing for a hard-headed newspaper. Liberal newspaper. Liberal newspaper, The Guardian. Mm. And you've got to, to be um, impartial. Mm-hmm. And this book isn't impartial. You're, you're pretty much espousing a certain message about a certain form of transport. So where does that fit in? With because you're you're not a, a, a columnist on the no, the Guardian. You are a, a news reporter, correspondent, yes, I am, yes. With, reporter. So how where does that fit in with your 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 that particular hat, your news correspondent hat? It's an interesting idea that maybe thirty years ago or even twenty years ago, the idea of a news journalist writing something like this, expressing opinions, for example, on Facebook and Twitter, simply wouldn't be done. But the journalism world is quite different, and newspapers are quite different. We used to have. News and you had comments, different people wrote for them, and they were never me. And when it comes to politics, for the most part, um, I don't express opinions because you know, I speak to MPs all the time and they have to, you know, I work for the Guardian, they can maybe guess some of my views or assume they might be similar to those of the paper. But I try to not express any particular views. The cycling stuff is different. I think in this new kind of media world, people expect news journalists even to be not just automatons who write 600 words of comments. Plain copy about you know such and such happened with personality and, and, and it's difficult answering that some people don't like it some of my colleagues don't really use social media at all some of them express much more trenchant opinions than me so it's a balancing act but I've basically you know found my niche I express opinions uh, about you know about bikes I try not to be rude to anyone I try and express it in a positive way and I think people kind of get that these days so you're you're preaching to the choir by talking to me okay so we yes we, indeed we we know. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of that in the, uh, the cycling world, isn't there? I've been hard on you here, just, just I'm teasing you basically, I'm trying to tease mm-hmm. out some, some answers, I'm not being a hard-headed motoring journalist asking these questions. So that being the case, and I agree with what you say in the book, and I agree yes. with you know, cycling uh, and some of the things that can make you know, an enormous amount of good in the world, but how do you, not just you, how do we, how do we get this out to the wider population to maybe uh, policymakers, politicians, uh, planners. How do we get the message out there away from the, the covers of a book that the choir, us not, really, but other people may not get that particular men? Well, what I always try and do is that whenever I'm talking to anybody, um, I try and stress it's not really about cyclists. You know, There's not really any such thing as cyclists, it's just people who use certified transport. But in the book, I try to stress that 
you know, people who wear lycra and have got opinions about gear ratios, of which I'm you know, part one, they're not really the issue. The issue is to stress to people that this isn't really about bikes, it's about reshaping the terrorism system we're living around human beings and about having interactions being transport, uh, between different transport types at the kind of human level speed. And, you know, one of the things I would say is, is that even if you don't yourself have a ride bike, and swear blind, you never ever will do. It's better for you because there's more space in the roads than you to drive or take a bus. Your family and friends will breathe in less. A small bit is better for the planet. But the other thing is, too, is, is that the world is kind of changing. And when people go on holidays in Copenhagen or Amsterdam or Utrecht, I've never yet had anyone come back and say, yeah, it's a nice place, but there's a few more cars, it'd be even better. It's about making cities which are just more fun to be in. So, plug your book, where can we get it from, um, and plug yourself so people don't know who your walker is, and how can we get in touch with you, where you, where do you hang out on social media, etc. Well, I'm a politics journalist at the uh, Guardian. I have what is actually an entirely self-appointed title of editor of the Guardian's bike board, which has been going back six or seven years now. Uh, my main form of social media is Twitter, you get PeterWalker99, and the book, if you're in Britain, is Bike Nation, How Cycling Can Save the World, published now by Yellow Jersey Press, available in all good physical bookshops, plus the useful internet giants, and also the Guardian bookshop. Thanks to Peter Walker there, and now let's go across to America. Uh, for the interview I did on Skype this time with uh, Martha Roskowski, the Vice President for Local Innovation at People for Bikes. I want to talk to you about uh, this new tool that People for Bikes uh, has got with uh, a number of different agencies. But first of all, who are you? What do you do? Good afternoon, Carlton. Yes. Um, my name is Martha Roskowski. I am the Vice President of Local Innovation for People for Bikes. And... What that means is that I head up the team at this U.S. national nonprofit that works to get better places for bikes on the ground. We work a lot with cities to help them build better bike infrastructure. How much of the cash that you, you get in for this organization comes from the industry? So People for Bikes was formed as Bikes Belong in 1999 by the bike industry mm. with the idea that um, while the bike industry leaders compete on a daily basis to sell bikes for people, they also had an interest in growing the pie collectively. So they all contribute a little bit of sales to our organization. Um, the leaders of the big bike companies serve as our board of directors. And um, over the years, we have evolved uh, so that I would say probably about two thirds of our funding now comes from the bike industry. And the remainder comes from outside sources, grants and sponsorships from other organizations. I don't want to get too political, because that can get quite hairy quite quickly. But going forward, are you seeing any likely um, differences with the current administration on funding for not just people for bikes, but but uh, sustainable transport in general. We are watching it very closely. So far, bikes and bike interests have stayed out of the crosshairs, <laughs> and we hope that we stay in that position. You know, we are concerned both about 
federal funding because there's a fairly significant chunk of funding that comes from the federal government, trickles down to the local level, and is leveraged to build better bike projects. So we hope that funding stays intact. One of the good pieces of news is that Congress just passed that funding bill last year. So it's in effect for, I think it's uh, for several more years. So there's not a reason to readdress it right now, which is good. The other issue that we're tracking is trade issues, Mm. that the vast majority of bikes that are sold in the United States are imported. And so if the president moves forward with some of what he's talked about in terms of tariffs, it could have a big impact on the bike industry. Quite. (laughs) Yes. So moving swiftly away from uh, the current administration and talking about this particular tool which you've got and which the so you have a a deadline for cities in America to submit their applications to to take part in this this city snapshot uh, tool so tell me about this particular tool and who it's done by and what you think it'll it'll result in okay So this tool is one piece of a larger program that we're deploying called Places for Bikes. Places for Bikes, part of Places for Bikes is a city rating system where we'll use a data-driven algorithm to look at what cities are the best for biking in the United States and also which are accelerating the most quickly, which are doing the most to change their infrastructure and get people out on bikes because we've decided those are the two most important places to focus. Mm -hmm. So um, as part of that tool development, we realize that the bike network, the low stress, all ages and abilities, eight to 80 bike network, so comfortable places to ride, is key to more people riding bikes. Um, Going forward, I will just call it the bike network without all of the qualifiers Mm -hmm. because we don't consider a painted bike marking on a 45 mile an hour street to be bike, you know, part of a bike network. That's the, so, un- that's the uncomfortable network. Yes, whereas this is the that's comfortable the uncomfortable network. network. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, look at the, the network, the road network works for cars. Drivers of every ability can get anywhere on the road network within our you know, within our city centers, the sidewalk network connects. But if you look at the bike network, the comfortable bike network, it's like little bits of spaghetti thrown against the wall. Mm -hmm. There's a piece here, there's a piece there. So our effort going forward, both with this tool and with a project we call the big jump, is to advance this concept of complete bike networks. Reality is, in the bike world, we do a really lousy job of measuring anything bike-related in the United States. We don't know how many people really ride bikes. We don't know the rate of crashes. We don't know how complete is our bike network. We don't even know how much bike infrastructure is out there. So we decided we needed to build a tool so that we could measure bike networks. We contracted with Tool Design Group and a tech company called Azavia to help build this tool. So it will produce maps of the bike network in 
in any city in the United States. It is based on OpenStreetMaps, which is like the Wikipedia of, of maps. So it's an open source mapping database. So it will pull information from OpenStreetMaps based on characteristics of the street or the facility, give it a stress rating based on algorithms that we've developed. And I can go more into the details if you want, um, based on some algorithms, and then be able to produce a map and network connectivity scores that both rate how connected is the network, how complete is a grid, but also how good is access to destinations. Mm-hmm. How you know are people able to get, get to school and commercial centers and jobs and hospitals comfortably on on the bike network? Now, in Europe, we've we've been using OpenStreetMap avidly for for many many years and for instance in germany the open street map you know has every street lamp listed it is just that comprehensive it's amazing and yet when i've looked at open street map for america there are huge swathes of the country that are pretty much not there you know the very very basic skeleton is there but there's very little uh, depth there so is this partly something where uh, you're encouraging cities and, and volunteers and and the crowd uh, in general to actually update open street map at the same time. Absolutely. We are develop we're working with Azavia and Tool to develop a primer so that anybody who's interested can go in and look at their open street map data for their community and update it. We did a webinar with a bunch of cities recently to talk them through it. I don't know. I'm not an expert in OpenStreetMaps, and so I don't know the quality of the data. I think what we understand in our initial exploration and talking with experts is that, as you say, it's varied, that some places have really good OpenStreetMap data, uh, Portland and other places. Some places, it's not it's not good. Um, We will find out. We're going to run the first run of these network maps. We will map 250 to 300 U.S. cities in May, and then we'll send them out to our, you know, those beta maps, we'll send them out to folks, contacts in communities to have them look at it and say, yeah, this is a reasonable approximation of what network looks like in my community, or holy cow, this is so far off. So we're going to find out. The good news is that if if the data isn't there, the fix is to go in and update it. And that helps everybody who uses those maps. So OpenStreetMap is is crowdsourced. So this tools that you're creating by the, the, the two agencies which you're you're contracting with, will any of that go open source? So, for instance, could... Uh, if those tools were made open source for, say, a British uh, bunch of, of, of bike advocates or organization could use the same tools? Yes, that's absolutely our plan in developing this. So our original vision was that this would be an online tool that anyone could go in and run a map for their city or their neighborhood and see what their network was like. Um, the output is a shapefile, so there's 
there's going to be a lot of information in there. And then you could overlay it with demographic information or transit information or, you know, anything you could pull in as another layer. Um, as we ventured into the process, what we learned is that generating those maps takes a lot of server power mm -hmm. that, um, you know, generating the map for New York city is going to take something like a week to 10 days of servers churning through it. You know, it's a lot of hamsters running in wheels on Amazon servers mm -hmm. is where we're going to do this. So that reality meant that we can't just put it up there and pay for all of those server costs. Mm -hmm. um, I so, so we're going to run this first run of maps, send them out, have people look at them and then update OpenStreetMaps, run another run, and then plan to do it annually. Mm -hmm. Of any cities that want to participate in this program in the U.S., that we will run maps for them. Um, the, the algorithm and the tools are all there. So what I'm hoping is that other people come forward, say – you know, from your side of the pond and say, oh, we'd be really interested in running this here. And then it's just a matter of the server, the server time, mm. the, funding that server time to run those those maps. We have a, a, a couple of not exactly the same tools, but very similar tools in that. So a lot of these OpenStreetMap uh, updates are done mainly in uh, university towns. So Cambridge, for instance, if you look at Cambridge's OpenStreetMap, it's it's wonderful because you've got lots of geeks and you've got lots of cycling geeks. So the OpenCycleMap uh, overlay on top of OpenStreetMap is just brilliant for Cambridge. It's, it's the best of, of any place probably in the world. Um, and then we've also got this uh, tool uh, called the Propensity to Cycle, which is an academic thing which again is using uh, maps and demographics data to, to show uh, how we could get people on bikes. The, the, kind of the desire is there to get people on bikes, but if we actually plot it against what's physically on the ground, your spaghetti against the wall, it's very difficult to get people on bikes because they don't want to ride on spaghetti. They want to ride on the full meal, the full thing. Um, so what you're saying is really interesting. If, if this kind of tool is, is available after you've sent your hamsters out and they've, they've done their, their work, to then become part of the, the global, the worldwide uh, tools that advocates around the world can use in their cities and their towns too. Yes. And so the... Um... I mean, that, that's the idea is that we contribute this and we make this available for anyone who wants to use it. Um, you know, we'll see. I'm kind of holding my breath come May when we, you know, when we run the first run of maps and mm -hmm. see how, how good they actually are. I think the other, you know, the other piece is that the tool and a Xavier team, you know, in this primer have come up with some uh, additional tags that they're hoping that people will put on bike infrastructure so that we have more robust information about it. So, um, you know, that delta between what's, what's in there today and what would be really great will be, you know, it'd be really interesting to explore that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So you've got, I mean, I can see on this website here, the People for Bikes uh, blog entry, which which basically I found out about this and, and you're mentioned in there. Uh, it's talking about how April the 15th, which is only a couple of days away, is the deadline for cities to register their interest in, in, in becoming part of the, the guinea pigs for this. Yes. So we, um, like I mentioned before, we're launching this broader program called Places for Bikes, uh, supported by Trek, that will do city ratings. Um, as part of that, we want cities to complete a city snapshot, which in which they give us information about what they built in the last year and what they're going to build in the next three years, because that's information we can't really source easily. You know, we can find ridership data and safety data publicly available, but we're hoping that cities will step forward and tell us what they're actually working on, because that's the the exciting part, is what cities are changing and evolving and improving what's on the ground. So um, given that we can't run this network tool for everybody in the country, what we decided was that we would run it for the 100 biggest cities in the United States. We would include cities that we've worked with before on the Green Lane project or that applied to be part of our Big Jump project. So, you know, where we know they're actively engaged and we have a contact. We also said, okay, any city that raises its hand and says, yes, I want in, Um, their entree to get on the list to be run is give us this other data that we want from your city. Mm -hmm. So going the kind of people who in cities who are going to be benefiting from this are like, apart from the people themselves, of course, the citizens who want to get on bikes are the bike uh, officers. I don't know what you call them in America exactly, but that's what you'd call them in, in the UK. They're like the cycling officers on, on local authorities, the local councils. So yes. they can use this map and these, this data to then take it to their, their funders, their leaders, and say, well, look, here's the gap. Here's what the, the map has suggested. Let's put something in here. Is that how you envisage it being used on the ground? To start with, yes. That for the first time, we will have a replicable measure of network connectivity across cities. Um, You know, some cities are using, they're doing this stress mapping using the methodology created by Peter Firth and Maza Mercuria, you know, the low stress mapping that that's being deployed in cities with consultants. It's a pretty complicated process. The idea is that this will be a little bit simpler, but also easier, um, you know, easier to implement and consistent across cities. So I think um, we'll see how people use it. The initial obvious uses uses are like what you say, you know, basically to generate heat maps mm-hmm. in the city to show what is connected, what isn't connected. There's a there are scores assigned for each census tract within the, you know, within these maps that are generated where you can click on it and you can see how accessible within, um, from that particular point, how much of a two mile radius is accessible by bike. Uh, so it's both, you can look at it point. You can also look at sort of general connectivity across the city. So I think it will be, 
really valuable in illustrating what portions of the community are connected, what portions aren't, what are the big barriers, which in our country, you know, we have some good multi-use paths along greenways, you know, nice wandering pathways. We have a lot of quiet neighborhood streets. Our big challenge is the arterials, the highways, the, you know, the big busy streets that you can't get along or across. Mm -hmm. So I think these maps are going to illuminate that and just showing to it, showing it visually to people can be really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, What we don't have yet built into this, but we would like to get to is a planning function so that someone can go in and say, okay, if I change this corridor, if I turn this into a low stress connection, what would it do to our scores? But you know, that's a, that's in a future phase. We'll get to it. So what kind of cities is it the usual suspect? So Boulder, Portland, New York, is that, is that who you envisage being the leaders here or are you getting some newcomers who will just come out of the, the blocks and, and, and come up with something amazing? So when we put the data in for our city rating system and we'll use census data and fatality data and we're doing a community survey, which is like the Yelp you know, tell us about biking in your community, kind of uncontrolled data, just anybody can answer, Um, the city snapshot and the network connectivity tool. So we'll combine those pieces, run these ratings, and Portland, Davis, Boulder, you know, the same cities are going to end up at the top because they are the best places for biking. They have the most connected networks. They, um, you know, they have the highest number of people biking. Montgomery, Alabama will end up near the bottom. So that list is not going to contain a lot of surprises. This second list that we'll generate, uh, I think will be more exciting and interesting that as cities give us data about what they're doing, we will be able to look at, um, we'll be able to identify cities that are doing a lot to, ch- to make change now. So places like um, Austin, Memphis, Indianapolis, Chicago, that won't be at the very top of that list for existing conditions today are going to rate really well on the acceleration score because they're actively out there building new infrastructure Mm. and improving their networks. So we're still working on, you know, maybe they get a shooting star rating, but that's going to be an exciting list to be able to to identify in a data-driven way what cities are actually doing the most, even if they're starting from a, you know, a pretty low point in terms of, you know, their biking conditions on the ground. They're really working at it. We can reward and, you know, reward those, identify those folks. Well, sounds fascinating and very, very productive. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, it you know the whole bike movement in the United States is arriving at this point to say it's it's all about networks. When you look at the work of the the FHWA, you know our federal government, the bike folks on staff there. When you look at the consultant world, when you look at cities, every you know the advocacy groups. It's all we're all converging around this idea of networks, and hopefully our 
tool can advance that conversation by really being able to measure networks and compare them. Brilliant. Thank you. Excellent. Um, I should really ask, actually, this is what I, I always ask on the, on the Spokesman show proper, uh, and that is uh, how to contact you. So how, how can people uh, get more information on this project and where can they find you on social media or, or where you, you, you hang out online? Come to placesforbikes.org. And on Twitter and Instagram, we're at Places for Bikes. We have a brilliant blogger named Michael Anderson who regularly writes about, you know, what we're doing and updates and all that. But Places for Bikes is it's sort of a, a new umbrella program under People for Bikes to focus on building these great places, you know, better bike networks, but also uh, bike parks and mountain bike trails and just all of the um, the good destinations that encourage people to try riding a bike. Martha Raskowski there of People for Bikes. Now, before I go across to uh, Greg Batonte, my final guest, I'm going to split here for a quick commercial break with David. Hey, everybody. Sorry to interrupt the show, but this is David, and I wanted to jump in and tell you about this week's show sponsor. And of course, it's none other than Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Jensen USA is the place where you will find everything, nearly everything, at least for your cycling lifestyle, whether it's road biking, mountain biking, commuting, fitness, you name it. They've got what you're looking for. And all of those products are available at incredible prices. And most importantly, something that we've all come to crave here in 2016, 2017, unparalleled customer service. That's because if you call or email Jensen USA, you're not just going to get some customer support rep who really doesn't understand you and your cycling life. No, these are gear advisors and gear advisors are cyclists just like you and me. And they live the cycling lifestyle and they've tried so much of the products that are available on Jensen USA and they've got amazing training. They're there to help you. They can tell you what works and what doesn't which products go together and which don't. And you can tell them a little bit about what you're looking for and they can definitely point you in the right direction. And on top of all of that, Jensen is offering new customers who are referred to them by the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast one item at 10% off. So, I mean, you know, don't go use that on a water bottle. Go buy a bike. Go buy a new suspension for it. Buy something expensive. Now, some brands don't participate in promotions. And so if you see a message in your checkout that says no qualifying items in cart, go back and find something that qualifies. And then when you check out, simply enter the code, the spokesman, no spaces, plural, at checkout, and you'll get 10% off one qualifying item. That's Jensen USA, J-E-N-S-O-N, USA.com slash the spokesman. And even if you just call them, would you do us a favor and let them know that you heard about Jensen right here on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Our thanks, our great thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the Spokesman and our thanks to you for supporting Jensen USA. And now 
back to the show. I'm here uh, with uh, Greg Batonte. Is that, I should have asked you how to pronounce your name, actually, Greg. Is Batonte yeah. good enough? How, how should I pronounce your name? Batani, Batante, however you like. Oh, the, the silent <laughs> the silent T's. I would have never got that. How come the silent T's? Where's that name from? It's uh, from Italy. I still have uh, relatives that live over there, and uh, though I don't, I don't know them, and I would assume they're probably more foodies than cyclists. But okay, hard to say. <laughs> okay, so Greg, but you are based in California, and you are based, or you are uh, the co-owner of uh, TV Motos International. So when right. when uh, I was on Twitter before, and of course, if you're a cyclist on Twitter and you follow enough feeds. Then you'll get an awful lot of these gifts of of riders riding away, and of course, what you've got to realize is, well, they didn't come out from nowhere. There's a motorbike either in front or behind, filming that kind of stuff. So that's what you do. You're one of the uh, the, the the crews that go around pro racing and you film stuff. Exactly. So our our company is basically built around um professional moto team where it's the same people same pilots same shooters riding with those pilots and it's been this way for years and we formalized it about four years ago and i took a model that i used to run bicycle racing teams with so we got sponsors we clothed everyone everyone Certainly no one got through the gate without uh, a high standard or knowing who they were and how they're coming to us. So, you know, as far as being able to uh, produce a better show and raise the, the safety level of what we do, because, you know, a lot of times I'm spending a good portion of my day with the camera inches from the ground at 60 miles an hour on downhills, which isn't to say that that's some epic event but it's kind of a a wink wink nod nod between the the commissaires the riders and and us and a pilot who's not putting me next to you know snow stakes on the side of the road <laughs> so so when, it's good and go so, ahead. Yeah. so you're coming up i know you're going to the uk uh, soon in that you're going to be doing the the tour of yorkshire um right now just tell me you you You've also done Tour of California. So what are the races that we would know that you've you've done? Oh, it's it's a long it's a long list. We've done all of the Tour of Californias, um, most all of Utah in the States, US Pro and those, and then when we formalized the business and through just being in production for so many years, we started uh, we started moving over into Asia and UAE and um, you know, European races and stuff. So we've done tour of Qatar, tour of Poland, um, Britain, men's and women's race, um, only, only once. And we only provided shooters on that one. Um, and then we do a lot of marathons and I've got a crew flying to China right now. And we just finished up tour of Taiwan, which was a cycling race. Um, you know, for, for you guys, uh, Velothons, we've done some of those, the Ride London. Um, so it's, it's really all over the map. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of anything. But so one of the interesting things is it's not always about performance. A lot of times it ends up being price and then also language. So for, 
for Yorkshire, we will shoot only the women's and uh, the French team, which is kind of a loose team, the group of guys that, that shoot the tour, um, will shoot the men's race because the men's director will be speaking in French. <laughs> so so we'll we'll do the english portion of it and that happens that happens a lot like we i think we're going to be going straight from yorkshire to a a gp race right after in frankfurt and it's going to be an english director so that that puts us in that situation so all the races and the the, the marathon event you're talking about they're, they're all over the world so you are in in demand so just kind of tell us why um, a local cruise shouldn't be picked, maybe because of the speciality that you bring. So, what what do you bring to the table that's different from a somebody on a motorbike who has never done a, a bike race before? Wow, that is that's a that's a great question, and it's really broad, but it opens up a lot of doors to explain how this comes to be in the situation that it's in. Um, so. In the past, and I'm speaking back, you know, not not too distant past, back, you know, five, seven years ago, all the way back to 30 years ago, you would be hired, you would be a cameraman, an ENG cameraman, which is uh, electronic news gathering is what that stands for. And that's the guys who are running around events, you know, slinging a broadcast camera and standing there and taking shots of, of whatever. So they would uh, they would hire guys with no qualifications but in a certain sense not to anybody's fault because how do you learn to shoot live television from a motorcycle you you go shoot live television from a motorcycle <laughs> so um then you know a producer's job on on productions is to basically follow the bottom line and get everything done as cheaply as possible and a lot of times the oversight is the quality of things completely fall apart, but once those motorcycles roll and the race is on, you get what you get. And even back in those days, you would have communications maybe uh, you know a couple kilometers away from the start, and then you're on your own. So you had to have guys, or you, you hoped to have guys, that knew cycling and could basically ride a motorcycle, because even though you have a camera on the back, you could be a huge hindrance to the pilot of that motorcycle with how you move around and how you tend to innately ride the motorcycle with your hips. And when things really hit the fan, you need to hunker down and together ride that motorcycle to get away from the group. So that opens up a lot of questions. And those are the questions of, of the qualifications of who you have. So in those days, I, I don't know what the the gatekeeper's qualifications were for who could be on the playing field or within inside the moving envelope as pilots. And a lot of times it would it was clear, I shouldn't say it would appear to, but it was clear that these these pilots had never done it before and were pretty much the victims of getting a phone call saying, hey, you want to ride a motorcycle for a TV cameraman in, in a bike race? And, you know, sure, I got a motorcycle. So there was no qualifications. You know, my, my cousin can ride a wheelie, a city block. You're in. You're in. You're, all of a sudden, you're riding next to million-dollar athletes. So there was really a need for people like us that have done this for so long, see the pitfalls, have experienced the, the disasters on the road, 
to come in and, and solidify this entity. So in production, they don't necessarily want this because you now have some somebody who's taken this piece of production and and professionalized it. And the fear is it's going to be super expensive. Well, our pricing didn't change necessarily, but the professionalism of it went way up. So now a producer can call and say, hey, I need a moto team. Perfect example is yesterday. I need, I need a moto team for the GP in Frankfurt. And we got your name through the people at ASO. And they have a turnkey, one phone call. It doesn't matter who these people are that arrive. They arrive underneath the, the, the quality and recommendation of us. And it's a one-level one billing. You don't have... 15 people sending in invoices of various types. It's just a, it's a straight deal, and then we pay, we pay our guys. So it's not rocket science. It, it, was, it was definitely a need. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was definitely a need out there. And, you know, not to say that you still don't get a super small budget wanting people locally and fingers crossed and throwing them out there. I, I, still, I still see that. And with the streaming, you know, the cellular streaming packs that are available now, mm. there are people that, that jump in with no idea until they're faced with what actually is happening. So, and, and you've seen some of the results of that. Not that it's always unqualified people that, that get tangled up with riders or, uh, you know, other vehicles in the Peloton. But, yeah, there's, there's demand for content and there's a lot more going on out there than, than possibly used to, especially with, with the demand for the live streaming and the live television and not just live to tape and then it broadcasts a week later. Sure. Now, Greg, you, you are bringing up the, the fact that there have been enormous or quite a few uh, cases in the last, certainly in the last two years. And it almost seemed to come, you know, almost every other weekend there was the, another uh, uh, pro cyclists getting run over by uh, a moto. So, what is happening in the professionalization of that? So, what is the UCI doing? What What is the sport doing uh, to prevent these sort of things happening? You know, Carlton, it's it's a funny thing to watch, especially like I've said, my 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 business partner Philip and I have have both been on the back of these motorcycles for, for 30 years and, you know, kind of rewinding and thinking about race after race after race and the demands and what's going on. Certainly different races will have, um, different, different calm, you know, different comms or commissars, um, that will, will keep things super tight and, almost television prevention ruling from, you know, sticking their head out of sunroof. And, uh, you know, for various reasons, everybody's got their job to do out there. Others see that you guys know what's going on or, you know, we always talk to them every morning. And so many we know and, and then the latitude changes and they're comfortable with where you're at and what you do and how you do it. There's, there's a story that's that I've told many times and you know when we have a pilot that we bring in and train or typically most well almost all of our pilots have done this for numerous years so there's not that much training that goes on when they come in there you bring guys in that 
ride motorcycles or ride bicycles and don't think about what's next when when you know it all hits the fan it's seamless and and that's i think something that is innate to just a person's personality when you have somebody who is out there and they're nervous being there and they don't have a constant escape route with without a thought that's that's a dangerous pilot so uh, for instance in the story i referred to my pilot billy diaz who i've ridden with for two decades now we are i don't even remember what race big peloton and we're on a mountain climb of a wide road and nothing's really happening other than the pelotons riding up together and the road bends to the left and we are next to the peloton and the whole peloton comes over and crushes us which is totally fine and I have Cavendish come right into us and lay into my lap. And we ride through the turn. Billy makes no reaction. He sees it in his mirrors. He knows what's going on. He doesn't gas it away. He doesn't hit the brakes. And Cavendish is laying there for 12 seconds or what have you until we get all the way through the turn. And then the road opens up. Peloton breathes. He pushes off. Nobody says a word. And it, it never it never makes air or anything, but the... I guess what I'm saying is that there's there's good stuff that happens that could be tragic out there that you, you'll never see or hear about. But we also now have all these cameras and cell phones and, and everybody's shooting video of some sort and the demand with live streaming and the television shows. Are we seeing more of what has been happening out there mm-hmm. or is there more happening? And I, I think I think both things uh, have occurred. And clearly it's irrelevant because if you've got if you've got these athletes out there they need they need some protection and the protection needs to come from some gatekeeping as to who's inside that envelope and and truly carlton it's it's kind of a it's kind of a tough deal for for everybody involved you know one you've got the demand of having to have people there you have these tours that happen in a region once a year so these people that are on motorcycles they are they are not necessarily professional motorcycle drivers or professional course marshals or what have you they go back and they're they're plumbers or retired people or or what have you and and you know they're in a they're in a tough position because they're expected to hold everything to a high standard and generally the organizations for um marshals they they maybe pay those guys you know a hundred pounds a day so those are the guys who have one of the toughest jobs as well because they need to get through the peloton get up the road get right to the edge of the of the rolling closure and stand at the end of driveways or crossroads or wrangle a loose dog um talk to the fans make sure they stay on the outside of a turn you know what all the obvious stuff and then everything goes by they roll their flag up, and now they have to push through the peloton again. Mm. And these are these are your plumbers and retired people, and this and that. So there's plenty of people that have done this for a long time, but there's also always a turnover as, as time goes on. And so you expect a real high standard. And a lot of times, when you are pushing through the peloton, the way the protocol goes within the envelope is these guys will pull up next to the calm car that's sitting behind the peloton and they they have to make eye contact and the calm will say yeah go ahead or not right now because stuff's shaking up or the front of the 
the front of the group is is attacking and stuff, and they don't want those people in there in the mix. So they'll hold them back. But when they say to go through, the the riders really need to participate in this as well, and they need to to make room for those motorcycles to go through. Now, in a group that has it together, the people on the motorcycles, they'll go they'll stack up and they'll go through together. And one lead guy will be on the horn, beep 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 beep, you know, coming through, guys, thank you, whatever, and and they'll they'll push through and off they go up the road. But it's it's this. It's this constant lava that goes down the road at 30 miles an hour, and it never stops. So it, it's all this, this crazy little dance. And I, I've always wished I could you know, shoot what is truly happening, and you could see it from the air of all this movement and all, how everything happens. And there's these traffic lanes that move and how the cars stack up behind the brake and stuff. So there's quite, a, there's quite an intricate thing going on there. But when, when, it, goes, when it goes bad it goes bad. And I think a lot of times things will go bad where you can, after you've been there so long, you can kind of sense what's going to happen next. The slightest pedaling change of somebody, you know, an attack's coming, you hear a gear drop, but nobody moves, you know, something's going to happen. And if you're not ready for that, or you're pushing through just to get up the road or something, you're not really aware of what's happening it's it's when things can can go wrong you know but you also have you also have cars to contend with and it's not it's not just the cars with the ds's and typically the the guys driving those cars are former racers and you know some some it's not just the motorcycles some of those guys make the craziest most ridiculous moves we were mm-hmm. shooting tour of utah a few years ago and we're on a big boulevard and we had a guy race up in his car through two motorcycles, almost take out their front wheels to get to his rider to grab his glasses. <laughs> and, and he put the whole Peloton at risk and the guys on the motorcycles. It was, it was a photog, one of the seasoned photogs, and he's just shaking his head. He couldn't believe it. You know, so it's, it's kind of, you know, a lot of male testosterone out there and a lot of instantaneous decisions. But, um, you know, UCI is addressing this, and I know everybody that's piloting out there, whether it's a, a car or a motorcycle, will have to take this UCI course. And I've been pushing for it for forever, and 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 we've written to UCI saying we will run training courses, you know, around before races that we attend or what have you, and. You know, we just got to thank you. We've got it covered things. So I haven't been to the UCI meeting yet. We'll we'll do it on the 13th before uh, Tour of California, before the men's tour rolls. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll get a chance to see what's going on. But uh, it's hard to say. It's kind of like in the States with the litigious, you know, scenarios that everything is attached to here. If you have a potentially aggressive dog and you don't have a beware of dog sign and somebody goes in the backyard and gets bit, they say, why didn't you have a sign? Mm. If you have a sign and somebody goes in the backyard and, and gets bit, they say, you knew this dog was dangerous. You had a sign. So it's, it's a bit of a no win for everybody involved, but maybe some of the pressure will put some pressure on those, you know, that are, are out there doing this. I, I know there's other groups 
that, you know, put lipstick on a pig and look like a moto team and hire whoever they can get a hold of and pay super low rates. And that's a dangerous scenario. And I've, I've watched them drop bikes last year and be in the wrong positions and stuff. So it's, you know, it's life. And hopefully things will be a little cleaner moving forward. Tell but me, we'll just Greg, have to see. Tell, tell me about what's happening. You can talk about pressure there, but tell me about what's happening in the helmets. So you're each talking to each other. You've got the microphones. How much talking are you doing with with a with a pilot is it is it almost you know what's coming up you don't need to speak or are you constantly talking so you know you have you have good questions carlton um what's what's going on the hel- in the helmets is um after again after so many years you're used to it and you know which voices to to listen to and what to let go so in in our helmets we'll have tour radio Mm-hmm. We'll have each other, mm-hmm. pilot and, and shooter. We'll have director, mm-hmm. and then on the on the bigger races, there's take a take a tour of California for instance. So I have eight motorcycles on tour of California, and a couple of them are on the women's tour. So those front three bikes, Moto One, Two, and Three, are basically the world feed bikes. And when I say world feed, so you probably know what that is, but just so your your listeners will understand. Um, take uh, the Olympics, for instance. You're not going to have a moto team from France and Italy and Spain and in UK. You know, it, it, you have one group out there. Everybody gets the feed, and then they mm. sell that feed out to Croatia or wherever it's it's going to go. So those bikes, those bikes are doing are doing that bit. So you may have somebody from World Feed also talking to those bikes. So there's quite a lot that's being piped in there. We'll roll out, meet the race, two hours live is kind of the typical setup, and we'll listen to tour radio. Once the race starts, I turn I turn tour radio off, and I focus on director and, and my pilot, and again riding with Billy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we know that the second we hear director's voice, even if we are having a conversation like you or I are having, instantaneously we both stop mid sentence, mid word, mm-hmm. and listen to the listen to the director, because a lot of times they're trying to put a package together or tell a story of some sort that matches a feature they're going to show or, or what have you, and we instantly will stop and and do you know do whatever he wants or she and uh and then we'll we'll resume our, our conversation but there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation about girls and life and this and that and when it starts getting into those last 20k and it starts getting heated up and it's there's pressure on and stuff a lot of times we don't we don't say much to each other i if i have a writer right next to us like Sagan at California last year, we carried him for a long time, and I've got the ha- the camera underneath his bars, looking up at his face, and for some reason, I don't typically talk in those moments unless I have to, because a lot of times I'll speak, and the writers will think you're speaking to them, and I'll just nudge Billy with my elbow, and he knows move up a little bit, or right there's good, you know, I can squeeze him with my knees. And we've just developed this 
we've never even talked about that part of it, but we've just developed this, again, the synergy of working with the same people all the time. He knows what I want. I know what he can do. And if he needs to say something to me, he usually says it in a quiet voice and I'll know, you know, he's got situations he's dealing with up the road and I need to be ready to change my shot around. So that's kind of what happens there. You know, it's, it's like you and I talking. We could just be having a conversation, even even if I'm shooting. You know, I'm covering something, and we could we can continue on our conversation. But it's when those tight moments go that it gets quiet. Mm. Um, he monitors radio tour, so he'll say, "Oh boy, we got you know something coming up." You know that they've that they let everybody in the peloton know that this is happening. You know, there's an ambulance pushing through. There's gravel in a corner coming up at you know 35.6 k. You know, so so there's there's different things that that could pipe through. There's also been times when you have no radio connection to anybody. There's times when we don't have communications between the two of us because of whatever radio failure. There, a lot of stuff happens. I shot six hours of the Philadelphia race without a viewfinder, <laughs> <laughs> and you know it. I came back and nobody knew the difference which i don't know if that's good or bad (laughs) get rid of your equipment you can just do without parts of it are you greg are you rooting for anybody are you going come on sagan come on you can do this and like almost you know yeah yeah you you do and and uh, um like uh andrew talansky's a a really good friend of mine and you know was in his wedding and stuff and so if, if andrew's in that group yeah, we're we're certainly rooting for for people. You never you never say anything to the riders. A lot of times the riders will will ask you what the break is, and you know if if we we well we would know. You know Billy would know because he's hearing that stuff. He'd he'd relay that that over. Um, we've had riders hand us clothing and stuff, and that's that's not super cool. You know we'll we'll take it, but that's rare, and they they know. And then you've got a lot of people that'll jump right on your right on the back of the motorcycle and try to get towed away. And yeah. you know, an inexperienced guy will then gas it, and they get that breather of them gassing it away. Our guys will pull the pull the front brake and not break the motorcycle, but turn the red light on, mm-hmm. and and the rider will will go over. But you know, one of the best shots that is out there, and one of the hardest shots for the pilots, is to simply overlap that guy's wheel. So if, if he's meeting his front axle to our rear axle, that camera is, I mean, the people are riding along with that race and he's not getting anything from us, especially if we're on the downwind side, which we always are real cognizant of which direction the wind is coming from and where we place the motorcycle. So we don't affect the race. Cause a lot of fans and, definitely talk about that, about how people seem to get drafting. You know, they, they just think the motorbikes must be, must be giving some sort of either um, a, a pull or a protection from wind. But you're saying no. For, for us and, and with the, you know, like before California rolls, even though we have various events going on right now, California, we have, I think, 20 staff or pushing 20 staff. And that includes a couple ground guys with cameras and stuff. But for the most part, we'll sit everybody down. And we'll just kind of warm up the juices so everybody's thinking the same thing. They've all heard it the same same before. And it'll just get everybody on the same page. And one of those things is always to talk about not affecting the race. Mm. And for I always shoot Moto 1. And 
for us, we're out there. We always have a comm car with us with however many people are in the break. And we make it super obvious that we come around a corner and I make it more than clear that I'm looking at all the treetops to see which direction the wind's coming from and what's happening. And we place the bike to suit. And they see that. And it's kind of like those those first hours of a tour everybody's kind of getting that that flow of it all and when the comms see i don't have to worry about this moto team because i can see or i know those guys or whatever the story is they're off my radar i'm focusing on what's happening in that break i'm focusing on what's happening over the radio i'm focusing on moving the cars out of the gap as it's closing down you know they've got a lot on their plate too so Hmm. if we can be taken out of the mix it's it's easier for them, and it's part of the professional aspect of what we do. Ultimately, and this is kind of the this is kind of the catch twenty two of our business is if the viewer never notices what we do, we've completely achieved our goal. The second the 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 bad side of that is for producers who can go hire some local guys way cheaper. They don't realize that the easier – it's like a lot of sports and stuff. The easier one makes it look, the harder it really is and the more accomplished that crew is. So, you know, swinging cameras and sending people into epileptic fits in their living room is not, is not, our, it's not our, our gig. And you, you do see that plenty of times, but that's when you start noticing, you know, what a, what a junk crew they've got out there. So, Greg, yeah, what, are you, what are you? What are your thoughts on the? Because you're not just getting motorbikes with with cameras. You've now got the, the the riders themselves with cameras. So they've got GoPros. They've got other kinds mm-hmm. of cameras embedded in their in their uh, seat tubes, wherever they're going to be putting them on their on their bike. So you're getting a, a, a very different point of view from that. It, it does look different when, when they play this back on the, the TV, it, it looks a lot different to, to the moto stuff. So oh, looking at, sure. yeah. looking into the future, where, where do you see those two things? Are they going to carry on overlapping? Are people going to maybe not use moto so much because, well, we can just get the, the stuff from the GoPros. Where, where, where do you see the future for your industry? You know, it, it's, I think it's a little, a little bit of, you know, well, let me let me rephrase this. I've seen guys show up years ago with a sidecar with a mast sticking up and a camera on top of that that mast. I've seen guys sitting backwards. We we all sit forward. Just a lot of people don't know that we sit forward, and you end up in this twisted reality where you can move and basically you can move the camera in in just about a three hundred and sixty degree. You know, you do have the mast from the the live feed that goes up to the airplane that follows us to deal with if you're going to be really spinning around. But there's no reason to get to the point of that mast. Um, so you have you have people from the outside that are always trying to change what what happens here. And for for me and and Philip, we watch every every frame of everything our team ever shoots, every single race, and. You know, a week-long race takes me two weeks to, to basically get through. And over the course of time, personally, I've dissected what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, 
where that camera could be to avoid swim of the motorcycle. You're shooting the whole, especially when you're shooting looking backwards towards the face of the people, is you, you're spending your day in a sideways viewfinder. You're not looking at the race on a level field. So you're trying to keep things in focus, tell the story, and horizon line. And it's a, it's a tricky deal. But a lot of these people that try to come in and say, well, why don't you get on there with a, uh, with a Steadicam mm. uh, situation? And, you, you know, you, you, you can't do that. You have a big old body harness on. And if you do go down on the motorcycle, you know, there's a good chance you're not going to be walking away from that. So there's, there's drones, too. So all these things have a place, and I am totally in support of them. The cameras on the bikes, fantastic. You know, I raced for years, and that's the closest thing to what's happening, you know, aside from the heart rate and the blurred vision, you know. <laughs> but it doesn't tell a story. So you need, you need the fly on the wall, and you need people on those motorcycles that are storytellers. You know, mm -hmm. let's face it, cycling is not that exciting. You do everything you can to make it exciting, and you have that big lull in the middle of the chess game that that nothing is really happening you know mm. it can be exciting in those those last k or you have a good director who's 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 working the story and you have guys on the on the field that are all in sync with the director and what the story is and you're carrying the whole thing through and you've got moto three back there picking up the yellow jersey with a flat you know yeah you can you can cut this this show and you can make it you can make it exciting for sure um but the idea of the motorcycles being replaced, you know, I mean, how far in the future are we talking? Do we have hovercraft that can last six hours on a battery? You oh, know, those drones. Things? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the the drones, the drones are great. I mean, that is, you you get you get helicopter shots. I would be more concerned with being replaced as the helicopter team mm. with the drones. And that's why there's been so much pressure on the drones, you know, the, the people in L.A. that all of a sudden were losing so much work to drones, mm -hmm. especially for two-minute shots. But drones, you know, typically are, are up there for 10 minutes max. Mm -hmm. And uh, unless you had somebody that was in the peloton controlling the drone and you had a long enough period of time, it, people are still worried about drones coming down on their heads and mm -hmm. things like that. So. Um, but I think the drones and the, and the, the POV cameras are, are fantastic. I, I love that stuff being added to, and it's not that expensive, mm -hmm. you know, so it really does add another flavor. But for us on the motorcycles, there's a whole world that, that surrounds, uh, that, that feed that people don't see. And that's the RF company. And those guys you know, they exist as an RF company, and if you go to a football stadium, they've got ground RF around that stadium with antennas, you know, in various parts of the stadium that, that pick the feed up, and things are really good. With cycling, it's basically those same companies that are doing this on a moving playing field, and that is a gigantic uh, that's a that's a gigantic problem for them with a lot of things. So. Uh, again, since tour of California is coming is coming up, um, you know that's super fresh on all of our heads, and we're all working on the the whole show right now in the race. They've already gone out, come out here, done site surveys, uh, where they'll go to mountaintops and, and different places to see where they're going to send relays and stuff. But what's happening for for the RF and the motorcycles is we roll and we have basically pelican cases on the sides of the motorcycles and one side has GPS and communications 
And then the other side will have all the RF gear that the camera ties into that box, goes up the mast. That beam goes to a, an airplane that is flying above us. And so the, one of the fans' biggest complaints is the, the picture dropout. Mm, and mm. the RF companies in, in Europe clearly have have two legs up on, on the RF companies in North America. And we can go under trees over there. Signals aren't lost or broken up. Over here, we're trying to steer around any anything that would impede the signal. Um, and so we're trying to, what's happening is that signal goes up, it hits an airplane. That airplane acts as a repeater. It picks up, the, it pulls the signal in and it sends it back over the mountaintops or, or the curve of the earth or whatever you've got that's, that's impeding the signal to the finish line. And that's where the OB truck is. It has basically the television studio truck and, and the world feed truck. And that's where they are putting together the whole show. So, so that's how it happens. Where you'll get these drops in signal is <clears throat> you have a guy up there that's circling around we typically we can't even see the airplane they're they're using our mm. gps to find us they're circling around up there but if the brake is so far up the road the signal from the front bike to hit the plane and the signal from the back bikes to hit the plane are too far apart so they'll they'll have to have this this in between positioning hoping to get as much of both signals. And then when, since there are guys up there flying around in a circle, if he dips the, the airplane too far one way and the antenna swings away from the point of contact and the, the wing gets in the way, you lose the signal. So it's, it's fairly complicated. And then, of course, does the airplane ever need to land and refuel? All of a sudden, everything goes away when that happens. Mm. So... At Tour of Yorkshire last year, we had the first airplane failure in 30 years, and that was an alternator, and they had to land the plane, and there was no show on the women's race. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, it's rare, but it can happen for sure. Mm -hmm. So blame the sky. Yeah. Not the moto pilots. Well, Greg, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Um, and I guess I might see you at the, the tour of Yorkshire because I got uh, an email the other day uh, from the UCI saying uh, UCI accreditation is opening for that. Oh, I, I certainly won't won't be at the tour of California, even though I'd love to be at at, uh, at one point. But uh, we'll certainly be at the tour of Yorkshire. That's great. And uh, you know, if anybody wants to to uh, contact us or poke around on the website and see a full list of things we do or where we're going and what's going on. It's uh, tvmotosinternational.com. Brilliant. You've clearly listened to the show before because that's, that's where we normally end. We normally say, Anne, where can we hear from, from uh, the, the guests on the show? We say, where can we, we find you? But you've, you've, you've done that for us. So that's brilliant. Thank you. There you go, Carlton. Yeah. Thank you very much, Teamwork. Greg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, buddy. Cheers now. We'll look, we'll look for you at Yorkshire. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks. And that's it for show 156 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. We'll be back in about a week's time, or the normal slot, basically, with the normal and usual suspects. Uh, you can get show notes and more at the-spokesmen.com. See you now.